everyone, and thanks for coming back. Today's episode is on Barry Jenkins' Academy Award-winning film, Moonlight. As always, you don't have to watch the movie in order to listen to the episode, but we always recommend it as we will never stay away from spoilers. Today, we're going to be talking about the excellent writing behind this film and the difficult themes of culture that it tackles. So let's get rolling. I'm your host, Audrey. And I'm your co-host, Cherie. So sit back, relax, and please don't silence your phone while we check your cinematic pulse. Let's start with first impressions. Okay. Um, so I'll go first since I uh, did not know what to expect when you said, hey, we're going to do the film Moonlight. <laughs> what a culture shock for you. Woo, I was not prepared for this. I was like, this is, this is heavy. I'm glad I didn't I, tell you anything about it. Because you were like, what is I this think movie? I, I was like, too. I'm not telling you. I think I am too. Because here's the thing. This movie is not the kind of movie that I would have like sought out. On, like of my own volition like this would this is the kind of movie that I would have had to like watch for a class <laughs> mm-hmm. hey I watched it for and a class I was gonna ask you what made you watch it and that makes perfect sense because it's it's a college class movie that you you break down and study mm-hmm. um so so yeah first impressions I made sure to I went and watched the trailer um first before I watched the movie instead of just going in blind so I like knew what to expect but without any like major spoilers um and just watching the trailer I was like "Mm, this isn't a movie that I would just pick to watch on a Thursday night or something so um so yeah it it was definitely a a bit of a shock of a like not quite culture shock but definitely just a shock because it's a serious movie it's a serious artistic film um, it definitely reminded me of, of a story that I would have had to study for one of my writing classes. Um, it very much has that, that same artistic fiction feel. Um, so yeah, but I mean, first impressions of the movie, I mean, like it was, it, I had an emotional reaction to it. I mean, like, Ooh. even though I wasn't super invested in it, I was watching it for you. Like I, there was still a point where like I cried. Oh yeah. There's always a point in this film where I'm like, oh man, the tears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, okay, so so you said you watched it for a class. Uh, yes. What class did you watch it for? It was for my single camera class. We were talking about um, how films oh. are made. And, like, normal, most films are made single cam versus multicam, which is usually studio productions like TV and whatnot. Right, like you think, like, three cam sitcoms. Mm-hmm. exactly. So, right. yeah, so. This, this movie we were talking about in class, we were talking about mise-en-scene depth of field and the use of color which is definitely used a lot in this film to tell the story now what's the first thing you said mise-en-scene what is that mise-en-scene is basically anything that you can see on screen that's put inside the set that they use so like uh, a, a couch clothes tv literally anything you see in the okay scene is so mise-en-scene. conscious set choices mm-hmm. okay gotcha Okay, I just thought of, of Parasite because there was there was something I meant to ask you about Parasite that I never got around to. And I'm going to ask you once we stop recording, don't let me forget. Okay. Because <laughs> um, it definitely falls under mise-en-scene because it was a conscious set choice and I forgot to ask about it. So okay. if you haven't listened to uh, Parasite yet, go back and listen to it because it also is very similar to this because um, this movie was also based on an unpublished play. Correct. 
and it felt it. I felt it watching it. it. I was like, this could be a play. Way. It really mm-hmm. feels that way, and I think that's part of the reason. Like, I I really enjoyed it because it's not heavy in dialogue. That's actually one of the reasons I love this Mm-mm. film so much because so much of the storytelling is told quietly, unsaid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what did you think of it when you had to watch it for class? What was the your first, first impression? The first time I watched it, I was definitely thrown off because it was the first time in a very, very long time that I watched a film that had so little dialogue. And mm-hmm. I also did not expect it to be in three parts. I did not expect it to be basically childhood, adolescence, adulthood storytelling. But I like that. And it's like you said, it goes back to the screenplay of it. Like a lot of, a lot of screenplays or uh, excuse me, a lot of plays are in acts. Mm-hmm. So it made sense. Yeah, that yeah it was literally was act acts. one, two and three. Mm-hmm. But the first time I saw it, I kind of knew about the subject matter because I, at that time, I was still kind of watching the Academy Awards when this movie first came out. And it was always on my list to watch. Plus, I had a former coworker who's also a black male. He's like, hey, I think you really like this movie. You should go watch it. Of course, I didn't get to it until like 2021, five years later or whatever. Oh. But I also knew I really wanted to see it because I love Mahershala Ali. Ugh. Such a good actor. Thank you for saying his name. I was going to ask him, like, I'm going to butcher his name. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Ali is the what his King, name is. Mahershala Ali. His name is Uncle Aaron. Excuse you. His name is Uncle, for people to understand that, he's Uncle Aaron in, in Into the Spider-Verse and Across the Spider-Verse. Yeah. He, and he, I love, I love that they cast him too. Like if we're just going to jump into casting real fast. Sure. Um, I love that they cast him too. Cause he's not, he wasn't Uncle Aaron yet because Into the Spider-Verse didn't come out till what? 2019? 2018? 2018, yeah, 2018, 2019-ish. He might have been Uncle Aaron, but the movie definitely wasn't out yet. Right, yeah, it wasn't out yet. And so, and I I loved it because he was kind of like the same character. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was just like, it's like I'm watching Uncle Aaron. Like, I I don't know. There was like a familiarity to it that I really like because his voice is just so iconic. I was going to say his voice, there's something soothing about him speaking. Oh, it's so soothing. Like, I want to listen. Like, he would be like a great like bedtime story reader. Oh, for sure. I was going to say, let him do audiobooks. Please, yes, let him do audiobooks. That would be great. He'd be a great audiobook reader. Um, okay, so are we jumping on casting? We're just sure, jumping on casting? Sure, let's go to casting. Yeah, so the other, um, I feel like there were just, like, three people that kind of carried this whole movie, and one of them is not the person who played Chiron, mm-hmm. because, um, that, that character is broken up into three separate parts, so really the people you see on screen the, the most-ish, um, is, uh, Mr. Say his first name. Mahershala? Okay. All right. It's like Mahershis and Ursula together. Okay. Mahershala. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Okay. That's how I'm going to remember it. That's my mnemonic device and you can't take that away from me. Um, Anyway, so him, Naomi Harris, who played the mother, Mm -hmm. um, and then Janelle Monae, who played Teresa, um, Juan's girlfriend. And, like, they were the ones, they were the most consistent ones that you saw on screen all the time. Mm-hmm. Everybody else got replaced with somebody else who aged up. Um, right. And, like, their performances were so strong. Oh, I mean, yes. Naomi Harris especially. Honest, I, honestly, like, I feel like she was the standout actress in this movie for me. And I already loved her because she plays Tia Dalma. For those of you who, like, weren't sure, like, if you watch this movie and you're like, why don't I recognize her? She plays Tia Dalma in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. So she is like the Jamaican like witch that helps them like on their quest and finding Davy Jones and, and the lady who was in love with Davy Jones. She, um, that's her. And I liked it because 
she puts she has a Jamaican accent, which I don't know what the um actress's back like cultural background is. I don't know where she's from, but um she has a Jamaican accent in the Pirates franchise and you could hear some of it in this movie. Um, and it made me, it made me wonder, like, if she's maybe, like, second generation American or something maybe. her character is supposed to be. I don't know. It was just, like, a nice little affect that the actress threw in there to just add some depth to her character that wasn't necessarily explicitly stated as part of the plot. And I liked it. She did a great job. Her performance um, was so good. And, man. It was so her, good. It broke me so many times. Like, even the first one or two times I watched this film a few years ago and then even watching it again the last few days I'm just like oh my god her her role just she is heartbreaking and she's heartbreaking and just so good because you 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 feel for her as a mom mm-hmm. you feel bad for her and the choices she's she's made in her life mm-hmm. but she also realizes she's part of her own problem like she's part of her problem she that that's the thing is her character was so moving because her story was one that is so real mm-hmm. um it is a very common story in america a, a country that does suffer with a lot of substance use and substance abuse disorders mm-hmm. that we see this kind of story play out so much and she i her character was really interesting like t- to me she could have been considered like a main character because she has just as much character and plot development as Chiron does. Yeah. Oh yeah. The whole movie because you see her in act one when she has like a steady job and she's trying, but she also has a substance use problem Mm -hmm. and you see her trying to play this balancing act and, and do both and try to be a working mother, but also have a substance use disorder. And, and then in act two, you see her having given into it, which she's mm-hmm. home during the day. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have her job anymore. Whatever has happened, she has you could her, argue, her substance use. Mm-hmm. You could argue her story and Chiron's happen in tandem. They do. I completely agree. That's what I was saying. Like, she's like another main character because she has just as much character and plot development as Chiron sure. does. Um, sure. Almost, honestly, maybe more because like not to get into writing too early, but her character gets resolution. She cleans herself up by act three. Mm-hmm. She, I, it sounds like she gets, I, I kind of miss some of the finer points of their conversation that they have in that garden, but it seems like she works where she's a patient at. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so she gets to just work there and live there and just stay out of trouble. And she knows mm-hmm. that like, if she, if she didn't do that, then she would give back into her substance use disorder. Yeah. And so she just stays there to keep herself clean. And like, so she has more resolution than Chiron's character does, mm-hmm. ultimately. there, There's a lot of storytelling. We'll, we'll get into it in a minute, but there's a lot of storytelling and clothing and color in this film. So, yes, you definitely see where her Ooh. resolution has come by the end of the film just based on her clothes. Can we, t- can we talk about it? Because I noticed it. Now that you say something, I noticed it. So... Oh man, there's so much to be said about do you this wanna, film. Do you want to just jump into some of that, some of those choices, like color? Because, because, because I do have some questions. Because you definitely noticed way more than I did. I wanna. I'm gonna. Because you're you're very eloquent. Why don't you give a short description <laughs> of this story, real quick? Oh boy. Okay, I forgot about that, and I did not prepare one. Okay, so so this film follows the life of of a young boy, Chiron, um, growing up in the 
suburban streets of Miami. Mm-hmm. Um, not suburban, suburban, but and it, but it's not projects either. It's it's just it ain't like great. lower income. It is uh, Liberty City, Miami, I believe they said, and it's kind. Oh, of, you're right. Um, yes, it's a it's a specific suburb of Miami. It's. The way you look at it is everything is so bright and beautiful on the outside, but everything inside is just so broken. So yeah, everything yes. in Miami is is bright. So I lo- okay. So yes, it, it does take place in Liberty City, Miami, um, and it follows this kid as he he grows up with a tumultuous relationship with his mother who has a substance use disorder, um, and he kind of gets taken under the wing of someone else who has a home and has money and tries to show him some ways to make better choices about his life as he's a young boy. Um, But unfortunately, that relationship is also contentious because the person who takes him under his wing is a drug dealer. Yep. Um, Not only a drug dealer, dealing the drugs to his mother. Unfortunately, he is his mother's drug dealer, yes. Um, And that's very painful. And so we see the movie set into three acts. We see Um, The main character, Chiron, as a little kid, um, probably around like 10 to 12. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we see him again as a teenager. Um, And we see him starting to grapple with some of the things that he got bullied for as a kid, which he was made fun of for potentially being gay. Mm -hmm. Um, And once we see him as a teenager, we see him starting to struggle with that potentially being a part of his identity and getting bullied for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And he starts to have like some blossoming coming of age experiences but ultimately um at that point he has lost his he, he loses his mentor um yep. in during his teenage years i believe um, yes which before you continue on talking about mm-hmm. act three it was shocking to get into the second act of this film and one of the main characters was gone Yes. Because you thought, you thought that Juan was going to be part of this whole story, but honestly, mm-hmm. it you makes did. You, sense. You thought that he was going to be, but but that would have been tropey. It would have been tropey for him to have a mentor the whole time, mm-hmm. you know, telling him what he should and shouldn't be doing with his life. And it was part of his character development right. to suddenly lose his mentor. It's part and of it, every coming of age story where the character, the main character loses their mentor. Mm-hmm. And it and it does come into play in Act Three, which I'll get to in a second. So he loses his mentor, um, Juan, the drug dealer, um, d- dies. We don't know how, but he mm-hmm. he dies. Um, and unfortunately, Chiron stands up in the wrong way to the people who have been bullying him, um, and he winds up going to jail. Yep. Um, as as a young kid, and he goes to juvie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty much where. Um, act two ends is with Sharon going to juvie. Um, and then in act three, we see him as an adult. Yes. Um, and he has clearly, it sounds like been in and out of jail several times. And in one of his stints in jail, um, he met someone who was a drug dealer. And the second he got out, he got put on the block and became a drug dealer. Like his Successful. mentor. He became one. He became mm-hmm. his mentor. Yeah. He became, yeah, it's very obvious we see him become a, a just another version of his mentor. Um, and we just, we see him, an old contact from his childhood reaches out to him. Um, we see his old life crawling, you know, clawing back at him, 
asking for him to come back. He has since moved from Miami to Atlanta mm-hmm. and is just living, you know, this different Juan-esque alter ego where there's no one there to judge him for how he grew up. Right. And, but his old life keeps calling back to him. His mother calls him regularly. And this, um, the friend from when he was younger also reaches out to him and asks for, and asks to see him. Yeah. Um, and so in act three, we see him go back to Miami and meet this person from his childhood and meet his mom, um, and really have to grapple with the choices that he's made in his life to get him where he is and who he has chosen to be. Correct. At this point in time. Correct. Um, Good summation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I, I will say that one, I did notice from a writing perspective, one dying is important because at the end of it, Chiron has to think about the person he's going to be. Mm-hmm. And and I'm, I'm sure you caught this. Um, you know, he, he literally became... Juan. He has the, yeah. the crown on his dashboard. Mm-hmm. He even drives an old model Chevy Impala, just like Juan did. Don't think I missed the car. I caught mm-hmm. the car. I knew you were going to miss are, the car. They are both Chevy Impalas. Um, and and he's a drug dealer. He's literally who his mentor was. Yeah. I mean, um, they even... He, they, <laughs> there's, it's crazy how many things are similar. Like, he... Like, there's the point where he's, like, bathing his face in the water when he wakes up. It's blue. He's all in blue. He literally has become mm-hmm. blue. Yeah, which he li- his mentor's he- nickname was given to him as blue at one point. Um, mm-hmm. And then He you keeps also- his hair in a wrap just like he did. Wears a chain just like he did. He's like- got grills in his teeth. Mm-hmm. Just he like Juan did. All of, yeah, he basically just became who he thought was cool when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, contentious that relationship may be or not, he he did look up to Juan. Yeah. And it's important that Juan's character died because, um, and I'm sure you saw this shot, there's just a brief frame of um, Chiron with the revolver. Yeah. And, and that's it. That's all we get. That's all we get. It, it's supposed to just be like him doing his thing as a drug dealer, you know, having to threaten people or whatever when he's not getting his money or, or whatever, just part of his job. And, but that, I think that that shot with the revolver is really important because that tells you, I think you're supposed to connect the dots of that's most likely how Juan died mm-hmm. was you know, something to do with dealing drugs, unfortunately, an altercation gone bad. And because ultimately the movie ends with Chiron kind of needing to decide what he's going to do with his life. You know, the characters that knew him when he was young are kind of throwing in his face, like, you've made some stupid decisions. You you wound up being everything that you know that you shouldn't and you know that you're better than. And, And I think Juan's death and the revolver is meant to be there as symbols to show you that, like, if he doesn't change something, he could just end up just like Juan. Yep. And he could die young. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, one of the reasons I love this film so much is because visual storytelling. And I could talk about cameras and whatnot all day and talk about, you know, different camera movements, camera usage. Like, there are times, like, here's the thing is, like, we as an audience, sometimes as we're watching this film, we feel almost too close to him. Like we feel like it's intrusive, but that's on purpose because it feels like we're intruding on his life. People keep asking me this question. like, who are you? Who do you want to be? Who do you think you are? Those are intrusive questions to ask. And those moments happen a lot. The camera will dolly towards him 
it'll move toward, it'll, it, it'll pan, it'll zoom. There it does all these things. But one of the most poignant shots, you know, we get so many shots actually where we're like right up there with him. There's a shot where he and Kevin, his friend from the past, his current friend, whatever, whatever act you're in, Kevin is part of it. And they're like roughhousing. He's like, oh, I'm going to teach you how to be hard. You know, you're, I'm going to teach you mm-hmm. to be able to stick up for yourself and fight for yourself. We, the, right. the camera's like, in this fight. You saw for your whole life. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. The camera the work shot. in this was so interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. The camera's in the shot. And then you have, we'll come back to the ocean scene. But there's also, there's a, the when, at the beginning of the film, when Chiron has been chased into the crack house. Mm-hmm. And Juan comes in. Right? We have this mm-hmm. three-dimensional space that was once two-dimensional with just one in this room. And then he rips down that ply that plywood. And all this light soaks in and comes in. And you know that's symbolic of him being like a savior of sorts. But you said it before. It's mm-hmm. contentious. Mm-hmm. You have yeah. all this light coming in. You know, you are, the opening shots tell you exactly who he is. He's working the streets. He's so oh, yeah. on the streets. They, He's in charge of that right. block. They don't hide that at all. That's where he starts. Is they show you that he is like the lead drug dealer. He calls the shots. Like he is the man in charge. He has a nice house. He's got a pretty girl. Mm-hmm. He has plenty of money. He has a nice car. You know exactly who he is. But it's it's weird. From the off. Despite doing these things that are arguably bad, he is a savior of sorts. You have all this light flood in behind him. And he literally comes into Chiron's space. He's like, hey, mm-hmm. come with me. Let me feed you. Let me get you out of this place. So mm-hmm. he does. Like, the the, the show, it, it's so weird because it's, it's a great juxtaposition of he's a, drug le- he's a drug dealer and that's not necessarily a good thing. But he's also trying to look out for Chiron and help him. Mm-hmm. So. Which. Go ahead. So it's, like, camera work there. The camera's. The camera so often is like almost panning around Chiron. We're revolving around his story, around his world and capturing it and being so close to it. it, it, it and it, it again, it feels uncomfortable. But then you have those beautiful scenes like the ocean scene, which you picked up on the kind of baptismal like nature of it. Yeah, the the washing away mm-hmm. of his old life because now he has this mentor. He has somebody to look up to, somebody mm-hmm. who clearly, you know, accepts him the way he is and wants to help him be better. Right. Right. Um, which speaking of like that, that uncomfortableness and the, the revolving around Chiron, um, there were a lot of like single revolving shots mm-hmm. in, in this movie. And I meant to ask, like they're, they're dizzying, they're dizzying and they're a little bit uncomfortable because they're kind of done with shaky cam. Oh yeah. Um, so you have both spinning and unhinged spinning mm-hmm. and, and it, the effect is that it is you get you get two effects like you have this dizzying uncomfortability um of the surroundings which is really what Chiron is feeling right is this dizzying uncomfortability being being surrounded by discomfort mm-hmm. um but then it also makes you pay attention it it zeroes you in on exactly what the focal point of the scene is supposed to right. be when you have these dizzying revolving shots it, it almost it kind of it's like a snow globe effect almost mm-hmm. like it it gives you this fuzz around what the central object is supposed to be mm-hmm. so that you can almost focus on it better oh yeah that's um, it I'm, gr- I'm glad you brought that up the kind of like fuzzy feeling around the the center they do that in yeah. the in the last scene in the movie well the second to last scene where they're in kevin's kitchen at the end of the show 
in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I was watching and I was like, they even have his necklace, like Shylon's necklace. The only thing in focus is his face. And even his necklace is a little blurry because you need a focus. Mm-hmm. Like we are so in his space. We are in his bubble. You can also see him like kind of like folding his shoulder into himself because he, uh, I need to backtrack and not go too far, but he's apprehensive <laughs> in this space. And color tells that story too. But the camera in this movie is so important. And again, that ocean scene, like we are, think about that, Audrey, think about that shot composition. Would you think that scene would be as important if it had been like a drone shot or even shot above water? Mm -hmm. It's so important that we're at the same level as Chiron. We're learning to swim as he's learning to swim. Mm-hmm. It is. It's yeah. not necessarily a POV shot, but we. It it almost is because we're right there with him, and like when well, the and water it, comes it over the camera shows... and all that stuff. It's just. It is. It's great. It's great storytelling, and it puts you right there with him. Mm-hmm. It, it that having the camera right there at water level also shows that that Chiron is having this feeling of kind of drowning and mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you find out later that his character just cries. All the time. Yep. He doesn't say it until he's a teenager. But, I mean, kids cry more than teenagers do. So he's got to be ch- crying as a kid, too. And so he's just feeling very overwhelmed by all of his circumstances. And we get that in, in the depth of the water that is beneath him. And yet Juan is there literally telling him, like, relax your head, relax your head. I promise you I won't let go of you. Mm-hmm. I promise you I won't let go of you. And and literally holding him above water. And is the only thing holding him above water and specifically keeping his head above water. I really loved that scene because it also, that's exactly how I learned how to swim was I was taught how to float first. Oh, interesting. And I, I don't like, remember oh, learning how to it brought swim. Me I think back I just to took swim lessons. The seven, when I was seven years old and was learning how to swim and I was just, they just like, okay, you're going to lay like this and don't freak out. Hmm. And I, and that's how I, that's how I learned to swim. And, I remember watching that scene for the first time. And for some reason, it felt it felt very real to me to be able to like, oh, I can relate to that moment. It wasn't in an ocean. It was in a pool. I can tell you that, though. You can put me in no ocean. Right. There were no potential sharks or anything. No need for the Meg to come and get me. Harken back to Shark Week episode. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the camera, the camera in this film. Oh, man. It, it is so, it's dizzying, as you said. And it mm-hmm. is so intrusive at times. And it's intrusive at times. And I also like the times where it's not close to him and you're panning in like that scene is again at the beginning where Juan has taken Chiron to the diner to feed him. And the camera is behind a, a counter behind a counter and zooming into them. Like we are prying into Chiron's life the same way Juan mm-hmm. is prying into mm-hmm. him. So, oh, the the storytelling with like a parabolic there, dish honing in on one conversation. It, it's crazy the way they use camera to tell a story in this film. It's wonderful. So, I meant to ask you, do you know what this was filmed on? Yes, I literally looked it up and I forgot. I can <laughs> tell you though, each act is well, filmed with you a did different. Know at some point, <laughs> each act is filmed with a different, um, not a different lens, but a different kind of filter. So, like one is filmed kind of like Fuji, one okay. is Kodak. Cannot remember what the other one is. That makes sense. That makes sense. Because I was literally thinking that. I was thinking, I feel like the the color, the overall color tones change. Oh, yeah. They definitely throughout do. each act. I believe, have... I believe act one is meant to look like a Fuji, kind of like where the colors pop a little more. Do not right, that's what I was going to say. Though. You have this this brightness where, where certain colors, like especially kid colors, you know, like bright reds and mm-hmm. stuff really pop. 
Um, uh, and I noticed that I wanted to ask you. <laughs> Isn't it always? Red's such an easy color to be important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to ask you specifically about um, like some of the the lensing that they used um, in the act one scenes. Because I noticed, especially in the scenes with Chiron, there was a lot of warping around Mm -hmm. the edges like an like an oil slick kind of effect um almost and and I wanted to ask about that because my impression of it it made it feel like um we were getting memories Mm -hmm. and so they were kind of fuzzy around the edges because that effect was also still there once we hit um once we hit adolescence with Chiron, it was still there, but it was less than it was in Act Three, and then, or I'm sorry, than Act One, and then by the time you hit Act Three, that warping around the edges of the frame is like gone. Not necessarily, because they still have that warping at the end of the film, and I'm going to assume right. a lot of that is again for like storytelling of again. We're revolving well, I think it's supposed to maybe represent like childhood and vulnerability because Perhaps. it's in when they add the warping back in, that's when his character is being vulnerable, is being true to the version of himself that he was as a child. Right. And I, I, again, I think a lot of that comes back to we're in his world and we're experiencing it with him almost to the point of being intrusive. So I can understand where it feels like everything outside of him is kind of like warped out or blurred out or fuzzed out, you know? You're, we're just mm-hmm. focusing on him and to the point, again, being intrusive yeah. and, and kind of uncomfortable. So it makes sense. I, that makes sense to me, but it doesn't necessarily go away. It, it does still continue throughout the film. I actually would say I felt I saw it less in Act 2 and saw it again in Act 3, but mm-hmm. yeah. it wasn't a lot of Act 3. Act 3 is really heavy on color. Um yeah, lighting. but a completely different color pa- color palette than one and two. Like you got like moody, deep like blacks and grays oh, yeah. and tans and beiges. Like it was just very flat. The color and so yellow, much of it takes place at night too. Yes, actually, you're correct. The color yellow actually comes up the most in Act Three than I think it does anywhere else in the movie because Act One a lot of it is white. A lot of the color that comes out a lot is white and blue. In Act 2, it's a lot of blues yeah. and reds and pinks. In Act 3, it's a lo- it's a- all the colors, but you see a lot of blue and yellow the most. And they are very contentious mm-hmm. in this film. Um, or at least in Act 3, they are very contentious. And yellow happens a lot, too, um, in Act 2 towards the end. But I guess since we're on color, let's talk about it. Let's talk about color. <laughs> so I'm going to break down what colors kind of mean in this film, whether it be through light so, or via clothing. Color is very important in telling where the characters are coming from and how they're progressing through the story or where they are right then and there. Can I jump in and say the one thing that I did notice about character and color? Because mm-hmm. you're de- like you're definitely really good at like noticing this. I feel like every time we brought up color, you're like, I have so much to say. <laughs> I, well, these are my favorite um, parts of storytelling. Is It's, it's always yes, the Yes, you're so things. good at it. I love it. the... I obviously love all aspects of filmmaking, but it's it's the story that's going on that isn't actively being told to us. My favorite part of storytelling mm-hmm. are the silent parts. So, ooh, yeah. I like the musical parts. But uh, so the the one thing that I did notice about character and color was the mom. Um mm-hmm. and I don't I don't even know what her name. Do we get her name? Do we get her name? 
you know what? Let's IMDb real fast because I know she has a name. Cool. Naomi Harris. According to IMDb, Naomi Harris had to shoot her entire role in three days in between her promotional tour of Spectre, the James Bond movie, mm-hmm. um, due to a visa problem because she's British. The scene spans go. 15 years in the character's life and were filmed out of sequence. Which, I mean, like, everything's filmed out of sequence. So she had to film all three. All, all of her scenes in three days. Wow. Yeah. Kudos to makeup team, because they did a good job. What an impressive actress. Impressive. Um. So, yes, I looked it up. Her name is Paula. Okay. I don't, um, I'm trying to remember where they even said her name in this film. I have no idea. <laughs> She's mom. Um, oh, oh, I know. It's when Chiron is getting bullied and they're unfortunately making sexual innuendos about his mom. And somebody says, does Paula still charge for that? Oh. Ooh. Yeah. And that's that's when Chiron like gets ready to throw a punch at him. And he's like, what did you say? What did you say about my mama? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's where we get her name, unfortunately. Um, so back to color. Um. One thing I did notice about her character is her color, her character's color progression. And I know that blue and red are very important colors in this movie. Oh, yeah. If you didn't, like, if you're just watching this, the way you can catch that is in the act blackout scenes. Like, when it just says, like, act two, Chiron, act three, oh, yeah. black. The little, the little um, pulsing colors, yep. You get the little pulsing colors in the background. Um, and act two is blue and act three is red. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did notice that Paula has a color progression. Her character does. Um, when we see her initially, she's in blue scrubs. Um, they're blue floral scrubs. They're yes, like a tealy kind of blue. important. It's not just blue. Ooh, okay. I want you to explain that to me. So I, I noticed her character was in blue. That's when she kind of has, has kind of a grip on her life. Um, oh, I have a question about what the florals mean, but I'll, I'll ask you later. Sorry, ADHD brain. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the, the teal is, is when she has, has her life together for the most part. She's trying to be a good mom. She is struggling with a substance use disorder on the side, but she's really trying to keep it all together and keep everything balanced. And that's when her character has, we see her have her most, her life together. Mm -hmm. Um, when she is using, um, we see shades of red on her. Her shirt is pink. Um, the light coming from her room is pinkish red. Mm-hmm. Um, the lighting in those memories is like a neon pinkish red. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is meant to be in, in conversely to what she was wearing when she had her life the most together and when she's spiraling into substance use, those are the colors associated with those points in her life. When we see her in Act 3 and she's chosen to take control of her life again and try to get her life together, she's back in that same color of teal. Yep. So that was the only one that I did really notice was her color progression because it was so, it was bookended by that beautiful teal. So tell me what the floral means because my ADHD brain was like, is it supposed to be, I don't know what the flowers the flowers mean scrubs are. Oh, okay. It's because the my brain was not a like flat color. Okay. So, like for instance, one when we first see him is in a patterned shirt. Uh huh. He's not wearing a specific color yet. He's not wearing white, which he does by the end of the act. He's not wearing blue like he does in other parts of the act. He's mm-hmm. wearing a patterned shirt. 
just like his mom, Chiron's mom, the first time you see her, she's wearing, it is blue. It is a bluish teal, but it's patterned. Mm-hmm. So we're, it's kind of fuzzy what their meanings mean at that point. We don't know what they are. But like the first time we see Chiron, he's wearing white. He wears white most of act one. He wears red once. Ooh, and does he wear another color? In act one? Mm-hmm. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. I mean, it does, I but think it doesn't. it's just white. So, later, as as the story progresses in Act 1, we see Chiron wears white a lot. Juan starts to wear white. You also look inside Juan and Teresa's house, and their walls are being painted white. And by the end of Act 1, yes. they're almost completely white. And white. they also went from that teal color. Mm-hmm. Some, of their col- some of their walls were that teal color. Mm-hmm. Their furniture as well. So white is kind of a purity, kind of trust feeling in this movie. Mm-hmm. White is showing and denoting trust and and purity. So we see, I mean, Chiron's a kid. Like at the renewal. Of this. Right. Mm-hmm. And and he he you you obviously are your most pure when you're young. So yeah. he still has all this before you've been corrupted where. by the world. Mm-hmm. He's been corrupted by by the world, by his neighborhood, by circumstance, things like that. And, you know, Juan's house is being painted white. He's kind of going from just drug dealer to mentor and savior, if you will, to Chiron. You also see blue. Blue in this film is kind of peace and truth. So when you go into Chiron's home with his mom, it's kind of a teal color. It's not true blue, but it's blue enough Mm -hmm. that he feels somewhat safe there with his mom. It's like a dirty Tiffany blue. It is a dirty Tiffany blue, yes. Mm -hmm. So we see those colors. In this film, you also have yellow, which is typically seen when Chiron is apprehensive or fearful of something. Potentially fearful, mostly apprehensive or... Which is interesting because that is the other half of his mom's scrubs. Uh They're blue and yellow flowers. Hey, it's also the pattern of his shirt in Act 2. Oh, man. Blue and yellow. That's so good because that, that indicates, at least especially when he's young, the tumultuous relationship he has with his mother. That he is both full of apprehension and somehow safety and trust at the same time. It's also, I mean, it also reflects kind of his inner turmoil in Act 2 of trying to find that peace, but also being fearful of becoming and like truly coming out and be like, okay, I'm a black gay man. You know, mm-hmm. you can't do that where he is because you also have the color red, no. which is, you see so much in Act 2. Red is in Lots. his home. Red is worn by his enemy, the dude who like beats him up. Can't remember his name. Terrell? Durrell? Durrell or Terrell? I think yeah. it's Terrell. To where where's red? There are red doors throughout uh his there's red throughout his school, there's blue throughout his school. There's there's peace and danger in his school. I don't know how you can find any peace in that school, but blue is in the school, but there are moments where blue is important. So like um Terrell's like, oh I'm gonna beat you up after school. Blah 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 blah. And Chiron is looking down on the scene where he knows if he goes out, he's going to get, he's going to get beat up. But Kevin comes up to him and he's talking to him. Kevin's wearing white. Kevin is someone we can trust. Kevin's a good dude. That's his bestie. Kevin is his bestie mm-hmm. from childhood and now in adolescence as well. And then, in act, and then I was going to say, uh, what color is Kevin wearing at the end of act two? He is wearing, at the end of act two, he's wearing white mm-hmm. and gray. It almost looks like uh, no, prison guards. He, I'm pretty 
I'm pretty sure at the end of Act Two, at the unfortunate heartbreaking. Oh, that fight scene. scene. Sorry, I was thinking of the literal end where they're looking at each other. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, the scene right before the end of Act Two. Kevin is wearing blue. He's wearing stripes because he's wearing. But he's. But I think the base color of the shirt is blue. He is wearing blue, blue stripes, and, and it's. And to me, it's it's it hurts so much more because if we're if we're accepting that blue is supposed to be like trust and safety because Chiron's character is now trusting him after his experience with Kevin, and then literally that trust betrays him. Mm-hmm. Quite that's, literally that's punches him in the face. Because he, he's wearing, yeah, he's wearing a blue and white striped shirt. And Kev, no, Chiron comes in wearing, uh, what is it, white with blue? I think they're both wearing the blue next and day. white. The next day, I think they're both wearing blue yeah. and white the next day. Yeah, he's wearing like a blue polo. Mm-hmm. And then you have, I believe Terrell's wearing black. Um, yeah. And black is kind of seen as masculine or a front. So in, in obviously in act three, we see Chiron is, he's like, I, my, my, I'm black. I'm literally wearing black. My name is black. And I'm, I'm, this mm-hmm. is me now. This is my front. This is not who I am, but it's who I'm choosing to be. Mm-hmm. And so. Oh, I like that. But like act two, I think is really important with colors because you have every color come into play at this point. You have blue, you have white, you have yellow, you have red. And you have black. Every color is fighting in Act Two, and that's when that's when it would happen in a place. Act Two is when everything starts to like mm-hmm. knit and pick well, at each and, other. And adolescence is chaos. Adolescence is chaos. You you have so many hormones raging that you like from every minute. There's like a million different thoughts going on in your head and a million different feelings going on in your head. So it makes sense that you just have this giant conglomerate of color representing right. all of these different emotions that he's trying to feel about all these different people. And, and yeah, that's a really good way to represent it. Then add in the dizzying camera and that is adolescence. Yep. Perfect. <laughs> and then act two is also the moment where, how we talked about their shirts, you know, the, the, the day where Kevin and uh, Chiron come in and they're both wearing their blue and white shirts. It's the night before that's so important where Chiron has just had his first sh- sexual encounter and he's, it's with Kevin, his best friend. And his mm-hmm. best friend is wearing white. To It's the trust there within his friend that mm-hmm. there was no judgment between them in the moment. The moonlight was shining on them. It was a bluish white. It's at the ocean. Mm-hmm. Again, water being important. Oh, every one of his like like life questioning moments life like altering. moments where he questions his identity and ha- has these honesty moments with himself all of those happen at the water yeah every single one correct and then we go yeah. into and then like you said you know this is the next day where after he's had this moment with his best friend and they're at school the next day and Chiron even kind of walks in where it feels like he has a little more confidence in himself like he's about to literally go sit with kevin and that's when terrell comes up to him in black he's like hey man i want you to beat someone up later and mm-hmm. we all know who it's gonna be we all know who's we gonna ask know. kevin to beat up Duh. it's gonna be chiron and you know it and it's heartbreaking man and it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. too because chiron's like i'm gonna let him do it i'm gonna let my friend do this to me it's the only thing i can do like i don't want to back down and look like a wuss but it's heartbreaking because you just you just had this night before where they're they're having this heart this heart to heart this moment together and then you have to choose between what's right and what's easy and kevin chose what Mm -hmm. was easy yep and so does chiron chiron also chose the easy road out he's like i'm just gonna beat him beat me up 
Yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't know if I would agree that he chose the easy road because, I mean, like, in that moment, it is completely between those two characters and he is kind of looking at him in defiance. Mm-hmm. Each time that he punches him, he continues to get back up and he, he won't just take it because he is defying him and saying, "You, I'm giving you the choice right now not to do this again. You could turn, you could turn tail and run and I'm just going to look you in the eye as you punch me and know that you're doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And... By the way, bringing re- the the baptismal religious symbolism into this again, I'm pretty sure that he punches him three times. Before oh yeah, Chiron there's a finally rule. hits the ground. There's a rule of three in film. You have to do everything at least three times. Well, that's there is there's some biblical there's a biblical reference to that about like like three times you will deny me mm-hmm. um, mm. with with Christ to one of his followers. I forget exactly who it was. Um, the, doubting Thomas, duh. Um, or was it Doubting Thomas or was it Peter? Oh, I feel really bad right now. No one, no one judged me. I forget exactly which disciple it the was. The person um, who judge you was God. Who's, who's, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't remember which disciple it was. But he, he says that there are three times that you will deny me. And there's also like the turn the other cheek um, reference in the Bible that like if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek and just let them do it again. So there were, there's a lot of biblical symbolism that played into some of these scenes, especially with the water and the baptism. And there's a lot with that fight scene. Um, real fast, talking about symbolism. And that's actually more hold allusion on, hold on. with an Act A. Act three, though. Act three. Oh, I wish we're so like running out of I'm time. Pushing we're it. Already... I'm pushing it real quick just because it's important. Okay. Act three. Because there is something else that I want to talk about and it's more I'm going to make it fast. With an a. I'm going to make it fast okay. because Act three is full of yellow and that's not a color that comes up a lot. So Act 3... No, the only time I've really seen yellow mean anything was in, like, The Village. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, The Village. Which someday I will talk about The Village. <laughs> I, I like that film, so we should. So in Act 3, yellow comes up the most. It is very poignant, that color. And there's it comes up in a couple places. It's actually, it's actually one of the first colors you see when Chiron, like, wakes up from a, a nightmare and yellow is flooding on him. Mm-hmm. Apprehension of Fear. So then you go, let's go into later where he's at the diner and he's met up with Kevin again after this horrible, t- they haven't seen each other in 10 years, whatever. You go into this diner and there's lots of colors. There's red, danger. There's yellow, mm-hmm. apprehension of fear. But there's also blue light coming in from outside. So you have a point where Kevin and Chiron are sitting across from each other and the like they're sitting in a red booth and you have the warm light from the diner coming in you also have the blue light. So you have right there, you have those two colors being contentious with each other because they're shining on mm. the characters. At this moment, yeah. Chiron's like, what do I do? Like, I, I feel at peace with my friend, but I'm also apprehensive. And at this point, he's putting on a front and Kevin knows it. And Kevin calls it out again and again and again. I actually think he acts three times in act three. Who are you? And mm-hmm. then we move from the diner and they go back to oh my gosh my hand popped i don't know if anyone heard that anyhow they go from the diner to kevin's apartment what color is his apartment audrey Ooh, it's all yellow it's all yellow and now chiron is in this place where he's going to be asked to, he's in a place that's uncomfortable it's kevin's space he's fearful he's apprehensive but what color does kevin change into he goes from a white shirt of trust to a blue shirt of peace He's now become oh, wow. blue along with Chiron, who's blue. And they have this discussion again. He's like, who are you? 
And Chiron finally admits something he's thought about for a long time. He's like, you're the only person who's mm-hmm. touched me. And that can have, obviously, double meaning. Obviously, his only... Sure, but, like, ultimately, it means, like, you hold a very important right. place in my life that no other person has ever held. You broke through to me. You know, Juan did, Kevin did. They were the two people he trusted the most. And mm-hmm. then the scene, the movie ends with Chiron with his head on Kevin's shoulder and they're bathed in yellow with the ocean scene or the ocean sounds again. And then it goes into that final shot of little Chiron on the beach bathed in blue moonlight as the camera mm. dollies towards him and he looks, in to- looks to the camera like, I'm daring you Such to be Such a good you. final shot. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to say like, color so important. And lighting and clothing, again, all of this is intentional. It's all telling a story. And it's my favorite part of storytelling is always the silent parts of storytelling. Because so much can be said. So much is said. That is not mm-hmm. said and spoken. Well, and so much can be inferred by your audience, too, mm-hmm. where you leave it quiet. You leave it up to your audience to figure out, like, okay, what did that mean? Right. Like the monolith in Space Odyssey. Like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking about that movie. That's one movie I will never talk about. It is a, a mind bender. I'm not Wh- doing Space Odyssey. Which one? Space Odyssey. 2001 A Space Odyssey? The- mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me tell you, I'm pretty sure. We- yeah. I- hmm. Never mind. You got to see Go. You got to see Barbie first and then I'll bring it up. Ooh. Okay. All right. Which I think we're going to try to do that next. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So, okay. So something I did want to bring up real fast. There were like two things that I wanted to talk about and it was um, illusion and music. Okay. Um, music is super fast. So we'll, I'll just touch on that real fast. Um, there were a lot of dichotomies oh, yeah. in this movie, um, which like dichotomy just meaning like juxtaposition of two opposing ideas. Mm-hmm. And um, the music did it really well. Um, I, I noted, like, the music when you open up and you have Juan literally rolling up to his block. And what music is playing? Classical. It's crazy. Not, you don't expect it's it. It's so good. You don't expect it. You expect, I mean, like, honestly, like, you expect to hear, like, hip-hop or R&B or something, something of that nature. But instead, you get classical music. I looked at classical my music. old paper for this film where I'd written out notes before I typed my paper. I was like, classical music? What? Yep. And you get that through pretty much acts one and two. and And it is... It's that dichotomy of living this, like, nah, living in Liberty City and, and all of the perils that come with that and what music that you think that you would be hearing, but then you get classical music. And ultimately, that is Chiron's character, is there is this image of him that everybody thinks he should be, everybody thinks he should embody, but he's not that. He's not that. He is, Chiron is the classical music. But when you move to act three, when he has decided to put on this front and and be, I mean, literally you get the ju- juxtaposition of the words like soft and hard. Mm-hmm. Um, like, oh, you hard now? Like you're a thug? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And he has decided to put on this front and the music that you hear throughout the entirety of act three is like hip hop. Mm-hmm. Is like what, what, basically like what he thinks that he's supposed to be listening exactly. to. What's going to keep him safe? Faking it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when his old life starts to bleed back in, in those moments with Kevin, in those moments with his mom, in those moments of vulnerability, that's when we get the classical music again. Um, so I, I loved that. And talking about, speaking about like 
dichotomies and juxtaposition, um, I noticed several of them. But one of them that I wanted to touch on was um, bringing in the word illusion, um, which is the allusion to Greek mythology. And that's in Chiron's name, um, which for those of you who like didn't look, his name is Chiron spelled C-H-I-R-O-N. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love Greek mythology. I'm a big fan. So this name is the character Chiron in Greek mythology is how it's pronounced in Greek. So it's warped for the movie, which is perfect. And I love it. So it's not obvious Greek Greek mythology illusion. Um, but from, so to give you like a brief synopsis, this is from Mayo Clinic because um, Chiron was a big uh, medicinal figure in Greek mythology. Okay. And he's often adopted by in medicine. Um, so from Mayo Clinic, in ancient mythology, not all centaurs were violent and lustful. That is the um, image of centaurs in Greek mythology. They are violent and they are lustful and it is not good. Um, although their general character was that of wild, lawless, and inhospitable beings, one, Chiron, was wise and just. Chiron, the wisest of all centaurs, was the teacher of the Greek heroes Jason, Hercules, Asclepius, and Achilles. Uh, Chiron was well-versed in medicine, music, prophecy, and hunting, having been raised and educated by Apollo and his wife Artemis. Chiron was the son of the god Cronus and the scenon Philyra. He lived in a cave at the foot of Mount Pelion in Thessaly, um, which is just a region in eastern Greece. So that is just from Mayo Clinic, like explaining briefly who Chiron is. But it's so important because Chiron's life mirrors that of the Greek character of Chiron because all of the centers in Greek mythology were supposed to be these wild, lawless creatures, but he's different. And that is exactly what Chiron's character is. And not only that, he was born of two different people. He was born of Cronus and Philyra, um, but he wasn't raised by them. He was raised by two other people, Apollo and Artemis, which is just Juan and Teresa. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and and so it it was really nice, and I liked liked that they pronounced his name differently, so you had to do a little bit of digging to find the Greek symbolism there, but that's literally the story that this tells, and it it embodies that dichotomy of this this wild lawlessness that is expected of Sharon's character, but that's not ultimately like who he is at heart. That's not who he is as a kid, Mm -hmm. and then that's the, the choice that he is then handed at the end of this movie and to talk about the ending i love that there's no resolution in this oh yeah you don't see the choice that chiron makes i love that so much you can infer from the ending scene of him at the water you can infer but you can also infer either way right he from could choose scene. he could choose to be true to himself or he can choose to keep plate safe and act like black instead of chiron Right. Or Juan, if yeah. you will. Whatever, whatever color he's choosing. Juan, right. Day. But, right. So, so yeah. I, I love that there was no resolution. Um, I loved all the, the dichotomies in this. Again, not a movie I probably would have just picked to watch on a random, like, Wednesday or Thursday night. I'll but agree. But I'm glad that you made me watch it. Also I don't regret not it. Also, not a movie I would have chosen, but I'm glad that it was put in my lap in school. And now it's what I think about when it comes to, you know, silent storytelling. I very much appreciate Moonlight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It very much felt like a short story that I would have had to read uh-huh. for a class, which I think I said that before. Uh-huh. Um, 
yeah, very much felt like something that I would have studied to talk about, like how how color plays into things, how um, how his sexuality was used as a plot device, um, which I like just to touch on that briefly. Um, I that gets so used in a lot of creative writing, not not in um, film, but in writing. Um, people's sexuality often gets used as a plot device so often to the point where it becomes tropey. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's often used to convey vulnerability. Um, It's usually used to convey vulnerability. Um, And it's, it almost winds up overdone when you get into Uh, the genre of writing. So, and especially by new writers, like I would notice a lot of the time that writers in my class would always try to throw in like, scenes of nudity, scenes of sexuality into their writing just because they thought that it elevated it without without understanding what it really meant or just wanting to use it to convey vulnerability. And I'm like, there's a million other ways that you could communicate vulnerability, but, but you pick nudity because you think that it elevates your writing and it doesn't. And so I was apprehensive when I read the plot for this and that sexuality was a main factor in this. And I was like, okay, so how are they going to do it? And they did it really well. Oh, yeah. I mean... Like, was it tasteful? Nope, they they did not shy away from it. This is not a family movie. It is rated R. Um, but they, it's not, it's not just used as, it's not a trope in right. this. It is a plot device to set him apart from what he is expected to be. Right. From the person that he tries to pretend to be mm-hmm. by the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, honestly, it was really well done. Uncomfortable, sure, but really well done. Oh, and, yeah. a, and a good fiction piece often makes you uncomfortable. Correct. And this did. It was great. It's thought Thank you for making me watch it. <laughs> You're welcome. It is. It is thought provoking. You can like it. You cannot. But if it made you feel something, it did its job. And that's what true fiction is. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that concludes our episode on Moonlight. Um, we talked about a lot today. We talked about color specifically um, and how much that plays into telling you the story behind the story and these characters' emotions. Um, we talked about the music a little bit and just how well the casting was done. Um, and this is just not not a inter- regular old entertainment movie. This is definitely a thought-provoking fiction piece. And it was really well done. It was. Um, next week, we think we're going to try to lighten things up a little bit. And we're going to do a little mini-sode on Barbie and jump into the fray of pop culture. Um, <laughs> so make sure to be here next Friday to tune in for that. Yeah. Cinematic Pulse is edited and produced by Cherie Jackson. The episodes and theme are written and performed by yours truly. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, and you can find Cinematic Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Thank you so much for listening, because we just checked your Cinematic Pulse. Roll credits. Roll credits.